0: Well, good morning. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. Kevin, thank you for uh, prayer. Greg, thanks for leading. Thank you guys for singing. How many of you like to travel? Super. All right, pretty good. So you're going to love where we're going, or you may not. Here we go. I'm going to first take you to a beautiful place I've never been to before. Anyone ever been here? How would you ever know that, right? North Youngest Road. It's just off of 340. Actually, not really. (laughs) All right, it's in Bolivia. Here's the deal. North Yungus, or Yungus, maybe, road. It's nicknamed the Death Road, by the way. And here's what I learned about it. It frequently earns the title the world's most dangerous highway. It's just 12 feet wide. It carves a narrow stretch along the Cordillera Oriental Mountain in Bolivia, which is shrouded in rain and fog. One wrong turn could send travelers plummeting anywhere from 4,000 to 15,000 feet to the ground. Many of the sections are unpaved and lack guardrails creating an added danger for both vehicles and cyclists. And an estimated two to 300 people die every year on this road. Isn't that wonderful? Bolivia, North Youngest Road. In case that's not interesting enough for your travels, I'd like to also take you to Norway. This road right here, check this one out, doesn't that look wonderful? This is the Atlantic Road in Norway. This evidently is built along a small group of um, scenic islands, but one stretch of the highway like this, you can see that curve. That curve gives me anxiety up there, by the way. I can imagine being a car on that curve up there. Um, Storms can pick up and this road is pummeled with wind and water. When it was built in the 1980s, it was hit by over a dozen windstorms during its construction alone. That's Norway if you're interested in that kind of adventure. Let me take you to one more road. This is the, uh, hold on, let me get to it. There we go. This is the Dalton Highway in Alaska. Anyone ever been here to this one? This is closer to home. The Dalton Highway are advised to bring their own safety gear. Believe it or not, there's no medical facilities along this 414 mile road and no gas stations, restaurants, or hotels for a 240 mile stretch. That's a long time to hold it, isn't it? Now, Much of this road is unpaved and made of gravel. It's difficult for drivers even in good weather conditions. But evidently, in the winter, the road becomes so slippery and icy that even ice road truckers refuse to cross it. That must be pretty significant. And if that's not enough, apparently the surrounding tundra is also prone to avalanches, just to add something in for the fun of it. Now finally, don't worry, I'll be done with this soon. This is my last one. Let me take you here to the, hold on, here it comes, there it is, the, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna butcher the name, I'm gonna tell you right now. Gulong Tunnel in China. Pardon me for getting this wrong, but the Gulong Tunnel in China. Just for some perspective on the Gulong Tunnel, hopefully you can see it here, this is actually where it is, okay? The Gulong Tunnel credits its existence to 13 villagers, crazy, who chiseled the 4,000-foot path into China's Taihong Mountains in the 1970s. And though the area has become popular among tourists, the tunnel still lacks barriers and street lamps, Sure. So drivers must enter at their own risk. Locals now refer to it as, and I love this part, the road that does not tolerate mistakes. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. You've been warned. Now I bet if I were to sit with each of you and learn enough of your life that your life would be not unlike any of these roads that we just covered. Full of both um, beauty and also danger. Full of turns that you didn't anticipate. Guardrails that you wish would have been in place but weren't. Risk and beauty. And I bet if we were to talk long enough that we would find that actually some of the best parts of our lives have also been where we have been teetering off the edge, wondering if we were going to fail or not, and somehow kept it on the road, just barely, even though we were scared to death at the time which brings to bear this principle that we generally know to be true. And that is that the best roads are often carved out of the harshest terrain. The best roads are often carved out of the harshest terrain. Who wants to just go down a simple country road? Maybe after seeing those, we do. But really, what fun is that? The best roads and the best moments of your life are carved out of the hardest and harshest terrain. The best financial decisions you made, the best relational decisions you made, the best faith decisions you made, the best career decisions you made, the best relational decisions you made, all have been in the context of times that have been difficult. The reason I bring all this up is not just because of the love of travel, although that is fun, but because this morning I want to take you back several hundred years ago to when an early follower of Jesus, Paul, was writing. He was in prison. He was in a dungeon prison, alone, chained up. He had just a little hole in the ceiling for air to come in and light to come in. And he's writing something and what he's essentially writing to his protege he knows he's going to die he's writing to timothy his protege his his mentee he's writing to him and he's telling him and we're going to see it here in a minute that he's going to have to carve a path in harsh terrain for christianity to continue that he's going to be tasked with carving and cutting things straight through some very difficult cultural political religious terrain to help the the path of Christianity endure and find its way forward. And I would argue that we find ourselves still, to this day, in some very difficult cultural terrain that we need to learn from, how to cut these clear roads so that Christianity, the faith of those who say they follow Jesus Christ, can actually continue through some really difficult terrain. So before we get to us, I want to take us back several hundred years. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn back with me to 2 Timothy. It's a little letter that a guy named Paul wrote to to Timothy. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the chair near you. That's our gift to you, by the way. And I also want to welcome in our online audience. Thanks for joining in this morning, guys. I can't see you, but I hope you can see me. And Paul is writing. I'm going to read um, read the first. I'm going to read five verses here this morning. I'm going to come back and comment on them. So we're in Second Timothy, Timothy chapter two, beginning at verse 14. And we're going to read through verse 19. Then I want to come back and make a few comments on them. Okay. So here we go. I'm reading from the New International Version. Paul writes, "Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value." and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them, I can't say these names real, real well, so bear with me, are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth, They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Now, this is what we're going to look at this morning. We want to take you back to the first verse to start it. Let's look at verse 14. Paul is writing again. He's in prison. He doesn't have a library behind him. He's just writing things that are on his heart and mind that we believe God's spirit is working in him to write. He says, keep reminding God's people of these things. And then look at the next phrase. He says, warn them before God. Now, you know what's coming next, but imagine for a minute you didn't know it was coming next. Imagine for a minute that's all you hear, that someone who's about to die Maybe it's someone you love, maybe it's someone you know, is on their deathbed, and they they you get a letter from them and it says, Keep reminding God's people about these things and warn them before God, and then the letter falls off. You're like, wouldn't you want to know what we should warn people about? And I find it very interesting, almost stunning, that the next thing that Paul says that's so all-fire important is that we should warn people not to quarrel. Really? Warn people, warn them before God, as if we're standing before God and saying, this is a warning, we're in God's presence here, pay attention, you got your first warning. If you quarrel again, you're like, warn them them about quarreling about words. Like, is that the the biggest deal in the world? On your deathbed, is that going to be what you want to make sure your children get from you? Guys, just don't fight as much. If you don't fight as much, I'll be happy. And then you can, you know, go to your grave. It's stunning to me why he would say that, and I wonder about that. And as I began to think about quarreling, I went to another passage of Scripture in uh, the letter that James wrote. And it gives a picture of what is behind quarreling, and I think it makes a lot more sense to me. Here's what James has to say about quarreling. Check this out. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you is the question. What causes it? And he says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. The most insightful New Testament passage on quarreling or arguing and where it comes from, to me at least, is right here in James. And what he's saying is, what's underneath this is what's behind quarreling and why it's, I think, so important for Paul is that he realizes that there's some things, they reveal a desire, that's unquenchable, that quarreling reveals a desire in my heart that I can't um, sometimes get what I want. He says, I, you, you don't have, and so you kill. Have you ever been there where you've had a relationship that's been killed because you couldn't get what you wanted, or they couldn't get what they wanted? You ever someone wishing, or maybe you yourself, were wishing that you could have something because you can't have it? It's just too easy to slander the person who has it and to hurt them and to gossip about them and to quarrel about whether you should or shouldn't. And quarreling reveals kind of this desire down inside of me to say, I want to get what I want when I want to get it. Because life is, after all, about me. And quarreling reveals that inside of me, there's some dark and evil desires that really want me to dominate over you. And I'll do, sometimes, I'll do whatever it needs to take to get there. And Paul says, this is a big deal. I want you to stop and think about this because it stirs something within you that actually causes people to hurt one another and actually take them away from their creator God who loves them and made them. And it has negative results. Look back at the text that we're in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says this, it has negative results. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. And he puts it this way. He says, it is of no value and only ruins those who listen. And so what Paul is looking out for is saying, Timothy, there's going to be people out there who are going to try to distract you from what's important by arguing and quarreling. It's going to hurt people. Relationships will be ruined. People will covet and wish they could have what they they really want. But I want you to be aware of conversation and words that actually have no value and result in the ruin of people that are designed to drag people down rather than to build them up. I want you to be aware of that. In fact, he goes on in verse 15 to tell him what to do. This is his warning. And then verse 15, he says, Timothy, this is what I want you to do. I want you to do your best. Look at verse 15 there with me. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Well, okay, that's fair enough. Now, I would ask, what does that mean? How do I present myself to God as one approved? He says, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed. All right, I'm still with you. I would like to present myself as a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, wouldn't you? Again, how do I do that? And he gives clarity finally at the end of the verse. He says, and who correctly handles the word of truth. That's the first actionable piece that I see in verse 15. The others are general advice, okay? Do do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. I don't know how to do that exactly. A worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, I understand what that means. But what do I do to get there? Then he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to correctly handle the word of truth. And the, the word here, correctly handled, this is why I went to my roads at the beginning, because it literally, it's a word that literally, in the Greek, it means to cut straight, to cut straight. And it literally is referring to, imagine a wilderness, and boulders, and streams, and cliffs, and valleys in the wilderness, and imagine all of that weaving and bobbing you'd have to do to try to get to where you want to get. This actually literally means to cut a straight road from here to there. And what Paul, I think, is imagining is that life in his world, is full of danger, full of trouble, full of struggle, full of philosophical differences, political differences, military power and struggle. In the middle of all of this stuff, Timothy, I want you to cut straight a path for people in the middle of a dangerous terrain. I want you to, to cut this straight. I want you to correctly handle the word of truth. I want you to to give to people a path upon which they can follow, where they can find what is true in a world that is dangerous and troublesome. Now, when I was younger, when I read this verse, you know what I focused on? The last part of it, truth. One who correctly handles the word of truth. And so what I focused on, and maybe I was taught, maybe I just wanted to hear it this way, maybe this is all I understood, is that Paul's priority was, I want someone who can teach well. That's what I read it as. There's content to be delivered because there's probably false teachers out there, wherever there is. And it's important that people who follow God think right and teach right and read right, whatever right is. And there's right and wrong. And of course, I'm right and you're wrong, but that's fine. We'll deal with that another day, right? But that's really what I leaned on. And I think that's partially true. In fact, I'm sure that that's partially true. But I didn't realize how partial that was. That is true, and I would do encourage that. And there is false teaching and wrong or less than ideal teaching, if you will, as well. But there's another part of it, and it's the first part of the phrase. He says, correctly handles the word of truth. Now, you know this as well as I, that you can have the truth, but you can be a moron in how you deliver it, right? <laughs> you, you can be a fool, You can be thoughtless, you can be unloving, you can be uncaring, you can be insensitive, and I can deliver truth to you, but I can be so out of touch with the world in which you live that you don't even hear the truth, even though it is the truth. And both are in play, both the character of the individual, as well as the content of what they teach. And this is what Paul is saying is here, and also in the broader writing that he has, is Timothy, I want you both, I want you to correctly handle The truth. I want you to carve a path that is true so people know where to go. They can think clearly about their world. But you, Timothy, your character is really important in how you deliver this. You have to correctly handle and navigate the moment to cut it straight. And then he gives a clear example as he goes on in verses 16 really to 18 about some things that were going wrong because Paul is hearing these things and he's trying to address these from in his dungeon. He says this, he goes on, it kind of pulls back from the first part of verse 14. He says, I want you to avoid godless chatter, which is actually a little bit different than verse 14, quarreling. He's talking about quarreling and now he talks about godless chatter. They're actually slightly different. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly this godless chatter is this, is, this is gossip. This is half-truths. This is um, deception. Uh, this is um, uncertainties or possibilities. This is also conspiracies. This is a space where you think, I'm not sure this is quite right, but I'm going to talk about it. I'm not sure this is right, but what do you think? Like, I've heard this. What do you think? I'm gonna, uh, the mark of this godless chatter is he says here, the people who indulge in it, great word, indulge in it, like give me another piece of cake because that was good. I need some more. I just want a little bit more, and I just want a little bit more, and I just want a little bit more. I'm just going to get fatter and fatter and fatter. I'm going to become more and more ungodly as I take in that kind of diet of information. It's just the way it's going to be is what Paul says. Those people become more and more ungodly. And he points out what we all know. He says in verse 17, their teaching will spread like gangrene. Now, if you don't know what gangrene is, just <laughs> I want to encourage you to go to Gettysburg and take a, a tour of the battlefield and learn about gangrene uh, over there. And it's uh, sobering to realize before um, we had the ability to numb uh, our bodies so we could have surgeries performed, these mostly men who were dying in the battlefields of Gettysburg would just have to take a stick and bite down on it as someone cut off their arm because it was gangrenous, if that's a word, but they were seeing this gangrene spread and it was going to control their whole body. And so this is the world that Paul lived in pre-medicine. And he said, this stuff, it spreads like gangrene. And you know this is true, that bad news always spreads faster than good news, doesn't it? It always does. <laughs> Everybody wants to know oh, what's about to come down the pike what's about because, and you know this is also true, that information is power. And I remember this when I was a young kid. I somehow, and I don't even know how, but I somehow got word at our our old church that our pastor was being let go by the church. Now, that's always a, a challenging time, but I remember having that information and it feeling like I felt empowered. I remember that feeling now. And I, And I told somebody about it because I couldn't keep it to myself as a young teenager. And then after I told him, I'm like, I don't think that was a good idea. But it's out. And I couldn't hold it in because it was just too much. It was bad news. And it can spread like gangrene. And I was one spreading it. And I had to come back and apologize later for for doing that because it wasn't right. And he says, listen, this is the kind of thing that I want you to be careful of. Those who indulge in it become more and more ungodly, but let's be honest with it. It's fun, and it's appealing. And the worst news spreads the fastest. It doesn't mean it's right. It just means it spreads. And then he gives a particular example, and this is important for their context. It's a little different in ours, but I do want to understand their context so we can make a jump over to ours. This is what Paul and Timothy were dealing with. So he says, among them, and now he names two real people. Hymenaeus, we don't know why his mom named him that, but anyway, he did. She did, excuse me. Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. And here's where they were at. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. This is a very local um, problem that Paul was actually dealing with. And these two guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus, this is what they were saying. Now, I don't know when the last time is you had a conversation with someone and the debate around the coffee table was, do you think the resurrection has already taken place or not? Now, if you've had that conversation in the last month, let's talk about that. If you've had it in the last year, let's talk about that. If you haven't had it recently, you're probably among most of us. Not whether the resurrection was a historical event. I think it's right to talk about that. But the issue is, and that's central, by the way, to Christianity. We believe deeply in that. That is a central tenet of what it means to be a Christian, to believe in the resurrected Christ. So let me just, again, affirm that if there's any question. What Hymenaeus and Philetus were talking about is they said, eh, guys, like, we think the resurrection already happened. Now, here's why it matters to them. Here's what was going on for them. They lived in a world in which the philosopher Plato, his thinking was still very active. Now, I'm not going to go deep on Plato because I don't really know a lot about Plato, if I'm honest know enough to be dangerous. Here's what Plato would say, and he wrote this this treatise on it. I have what is in my hand here is a clicker, okay? If you can see that, it actually works most of the time. Sometimes this morning, it even doesn't. So it's just kind of fun. So here's what Plato would say. He said, I'm not sure you have a clicker in your hand, and, and if you could be up here with me, there's actually shadows coming down from these spotlights, and just trust me, there's a shadow on my papers here from this clicker. What Plato would say is what is real is the shadow and not the clicker, to which we're like, You've lost it Plato because I see the clicker and I don't know what you're talking about and that seems so odd and weird to me But let me put he, he was in into shadows and into what the quote-unquote real projects That seems kind of weird, but let me put it to you this way My wife and I've been married. It'll be 24 years in May, which is very exciting about 25 years ago when we were dating I remember the first moment where I held her hand Looking for some awes there, but I didn't get any. Thank you. Okay and, and here's what happened. The first time that I held her hand, I remember feeling, feeling excited about that. I'm like, this is awesome. I may have gotten goosebumps. I don't know. But I'm like, this is, this is, this is fun. And like, I would like to do this more. Okay. Now, here's, 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 the, here's the deal. When I went home, do you think I was in love with her hand? Or was I in love with what it created in me? Because that's what Plato would say. So what's real is in her hand. Come on, what's real is what it made you feel. It's what you experience. It's your soul. It's the immaterial. It's the shadow of what it cast in you. And this is what Paul and Timothy were dealing with. Come on, the resurrection, the body, and the Greeks would say the body isn't important. Come on, it's not about the body. The body doesn't matter. It's what the body does for you, or it's your soul that is kind of held within that. It's the immaterial that is important. And this is why these guys are saying, come on, guys, what are you, foolish? Nobody, in this case, nobody believes that the body is worthwhile. That's what's happening here. Nobody believes that. And so if you want to be intellectually savvy, don't want to be considered a fool, the only way forward for Christianity is to say the resurrection already happened because what's important is the shadow of what it casts in you. It gives you hope for a future. It gives you an idea of salvation, but come on. The resurrection itself, it's like the hand. It's the hand that you don't fall in love with. It's the thing, the body, the whole thing. Not just the body, but the whole immaterial part. To which Paul says, no, 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 no. Let me deal with this particular cultural issue that's happening in my space right now. And let me tell you specifically that yes, it's very important that physically, the resurrection happened. Now again, we don't live in a Greek world Most of us today in our North American context aren't dealing with this particular issue. Although, to a degree, we still are. Christianity over the years has emphasized and re-emphasized that God created man in a body. That Christ came in a body. That Christ was resurrected in a body. And that there's a bodily resurrection of those who believe in Jesus Christ. That has been the path cut straight over the centuries. For us today... There is quarreling, there is arguing about other issues. There's arguing about how we see our cultural, social world that we're in. There's rocks and corners and valleys and streams and roadblocks along the way that impact our faith and the way that our faith navigates these hard-to-maneuver corners. I was reading this week in a book called Uncommon Ground. Uh, Tim Keller was one of the contributing authors to it. I would recommend it for you if you're interested in how people of faith can have conversations in a world that's more polarized. And I wanted to share a story from his chapter because it deals with this issue of how we talk about our faith and how we engage in cultural and social matters that can be very difficult to navigate. So here's Tim Keller talking about um, his family a little bit. And as he talked about his family, just a little bit of background quickly. In the chapter, he had been talking about how he had lived both in the South, which is more conservative, and also in a more uh, urban area, which was less conservative. And he was seeing that Christianity's expression was different in the South than it was in, uh, in the North, in particular, in, in a more urban context. So here's what he said. He said, not too long after we arrived in Hopewell, my younger brother Billy came out as gay to our family and moved to Baltimore to live with his partner. Billy concluded that he could not be both gay and a Christian. Nevertheless, he wanted to maintain a relationship with with Christians and his family, and we wanted the same with him. Our visits to Baltimore with Billy and his partner, Joaquin, I may have said that wrong, apologies, threw into stark relief how the gospel stands over and critiques all cultures. Billy and Joaquin were thoroughly unconvinced of Christianity, and Joaquin was especially incredulous that intelligent people of goodwill could hold historic Christian doctrine and views of sexuality. At the same time, we knew many people in the evangelical conservative Southern culture who simply would have nothing to do with gay people at all. One side, and here's what he said, one side wanted us to accept the dominant culture's beliefs about homosexuality, while the other wanted us to cut off homosexuals entirely. Let me ask you, how do you carve a road through that? How do you carve a road through that? Here's what Keller goes on to write. He said, the Christian gospel, however, did not allow us to do either. The gospel did not fit in the conventional categories, and Christians who followed the gospel were actually out of step with everyone. Then he wrote this, and I wanted to put this up here to share with you. He said, yet our understanding of the Christian faith did not allow us, look at these words, to disengage, caricature, Or demonize anyone at all either secular or traditional our understanding of the Christian faith did not allow us to disengage caricature or demonize anyone at all either secular or traditional can you imagine how refreshing that would be if that could be the case he kept writing he put it this way our understanding of ourselves as sinners saved by sheer grace, made it hard to feel either disdainful or fearful of anyone. Powerful statement. His starting point is when I look in the mirror and I see a sinner looking back at me, saved by sheer grace, it makes it hard to look at someone disdainfully, Makes it hard to look at someone and be angry at them, reject them fully. And it also makes it hard to look at someone and be afraid of them, of their view, and how it might challenge my long held assumptions. Why? Because of my centering on the sheer grace of Christ. This is hard on this issue alone, to carve a straight path. But this is what I think Paul is encouraging Timothy about, that all along the way, and this is just one example of what's going on in our culture right now, of the need to carve a straight path toward the truth and to find, if you will, kind of a third way of speaking, of listening, of engaging with humility, with patience, with love and with courage to the people who are around us. Because after all, what Paul says I think is true, warn people about quarreling and godless chatter because it's going to kill you and me. But rather, but rather, do your best to present yourself as a workman approved by God. Don't be ashamed, who correctly handles with love and care, and humility and patience. The word of truth and doesn't water down, but lovingly, humbly carries, carves A path, And so I have a couple questions for you. If you're a question person, I don't like to give answers. I like to give questions. Maybe you can give some answers. Three questions that are meant to be reflective for you. Hopefully they're helpful for you. They are for me. First question is this, as I reflect on this, and I think about my words, particularly from verse 14 of this text this morning. What value do my words bring to those around me, especially the ones that I don't agree with? Paul makes the case in verse 14 that when we quarrel, we bring no value to people and we ruin them. And so I'm asking the inverse question here. What value then do my words bring to those around me, especially the ones I don't agree with? This this isn't even a Christian question. This is just a a question. If you're a, a Christian, what's behind this then is, do I bring value that draws people to see the values of my creator God through Christ or not? That's where the Christian piece comes in. But this, stand alone, you could take this, this isn't even a faith question, but behind it is for me. Do I bring people to the value that I hold centrally to my life, that Christ came to this world? And the way that I speak to you and engage you draws you in to see that value. So what value do my words bring to those around me? Second question is this. How consistently do I traffic in gossip rumors, half-truths, uncertainties, and possibilities? Those things, those things grab, they grab my heart, they may grab yours, I don't know, I'm not judging anybody here, but I'm just saying these things, they, they grab, they are fun, they feel like a power rush for a minute, you know something, I know something that nobody else knows, we got secret information and knowledge, and it just spreads. And it's just a check in the system, when I read it, when I see it, when I wonder about it, I gotta ask the question, because Paul, this is so funny, Paul warns us before God, to avoid this. It's not just a good idea to think about. If you're a Christian, he says, before God, I'm giving you all a warning right now. Don't traffic in this stuff. And so I have to ask myself the question, how consistently do I traffic in godless chatter that makes me and maybe makes you more and more ungodly by the minute? The final question is this. Can I find a third way between today's cultural extremes? And this is the great question of the morning, right? Can I find a third way to engage in loving, considerate, kind, humble, courageous ways while holding out truth to people at the same time? That is your challenge, isn't it? And that is mine. Can I find a third way or must I go this way or that way on whatever those issues are? (laughs) Keller finishes his chapter on Common Ground and he asks the question, What if... What if we actually were to try this? What if we were actually to try to find a third way? What if we were actually to try to be courageous, humble, patient, loving? And he puts it this way, loving and and courageous. But, But the people around us respond with anger and vitriol and efforts to marginalize us. What if you try to be the voice of reason, of patience, of humility? What if you try to take your... Your your friend who's all the way over here, and you try to just bring them a little bit, and they're like, what is wrong with you? You must be all the way over there. And your friend's all the way over here. Like, what's wrong with you? You must be all the way over there. And you find that on both sides, you get marginalized because you're trying to find a way to carve something through the middle here. What if that happens to you? I love the way Keller summarizes it. We don't take this path because we know it will be successful, but because it is right. It's right. I can't sit here and guarantee you that there aren't going to be people who are going to marginalize you. Sure, there probably will be. But we don't do this because we say this is going to be successful, but because this is right. To be humble, to be patient, to be loving, to be courageous. To do our best to present ourselves a workman approved by God, not to be ashamed. To correctly handle with love and humility and patience and courage the word of truth. Because, and this is something you know, right? The best roads are often carved out of the harshest terrain. And you've got some hard terrain in your life, I have no doubt. And I do too. And it takes incredible courage and patience and humility and love to cut straight with the word of truth. That is what Paul said. Do your best. Do your best to present yourself to God unashamed your best and remember before god don't quarrel don't get involved in godless chatter it only ruins people will you pray with me our good god and heavenly father i thank you for the chance to get into this ancient letter that paul wrote to timothy the issues then were different than what we face now but the task was the same that christianity can find a way through cultural challenges, social, political, religious ideologies to carve a path straight to the cross. The people around us can see and experience and feel in some small way God by their conversations with us, by how we speak and how we carry ourselves around them. So I pray that you give us the courage to continue to ask these questions with our friends at school, with our co-workers, with our family. Help us to chase down what it means to find this third way to carve a straight path through the rocky terrain. So Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunities that lie ahead. In Jesus' name,